right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time to say. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's happening? Welcome to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. David Lesky of Inside the Crown will join us in 35 minutes to talk about Royals baseball. Yes, the season is still going on for Royals baseball, so we'll talk about that with David. Obviously, a lot of football happened over the weekend. It was our first full slate of football over the weekend with college football and the NFL, and boy, was it glorious. I hope you enjoyed sitting on your couch as much as I did. Uh, KU played on Friday night. This feels like an eternity ago now. Falling to Coastal Carolina 49-22, to and you know the biggest travesty in the game was being unable to cover that spread. 26 and a half points was the spread. And I'm sure it kind of depends on where you got it. If you did get it, I know at some points, I think it got down to 25 and a half. I think it opened at maybe 27, 27 and a half. So if you got it there, you might've got your money back. You might even be happy, but in the end, can you unable to cover the spread? It was 28 to 22 in the third quarter. It was even 35-22 late in the third quarter, and KU had a chance to either kick a field goal, but then Coastal Carolina blocked it because they were offside, so KU went for it on fourth down, as they should have. And they didn't get it. Drop pass, change everything, 14 unanswered from Coastal Carolina. KU couldn't score in the last two drives, including the last drive where, you know, as a betting fan, you were wishing Lance Leipold would kick a field goal, even though there would be no point in him doing that outside of just winning new money, which I, I guess is a fair enough point. Um, but obviously, they're going to go for it in that situation and just try to get reps for the guys and unable to do so. And you think about all the minuscule things that added up to barely not covering the spread by half a point. Vegas is so good, man. There's a blocked PAT, missed two-point conversion because you had to try to make up for that blocked PAT. You had a blocked punt returned for a touchdown. There's a couple of fourth downs you didn't get not scoring at the end there. I mean, incredible that that ended up being Coastal Carolina covering. But it, it's interesting because if I knew going into the game, if you would have told me Friday, KU wasn't going to cover the 26.5 point spread. They were going to lose by more than that. And I thought KU would cover the spread. So if you would have told me that, I would not have thought that I would walk be walking away from that game more enthused about where the team and where the program is headed this season than before the game. And yet, here I am saying just that. Let's start with this. First things first, Coastal Carolina is a really good football team. Losing to them is no shame. It's a team who finished in the top 15 a season ago. I don't even know. Maybe they weren't top 15 by the time they lost to Liberty. I don't know. But they were a top 25 team at the end of the year top 15 team headed into the bowl games. A really good football team. They're ranked 17th in the country. You were playing them on the road. 
They had their highest attendance of any home game in school history. And you were competitive with them. You made it 28 to 22 in the third quarter. You got down 28 to 9 and you kept responding. You wouldn't quit in that game. And again, I mean, even when it was 35 22, who knows if, if Velton Gardner catches that pass and picks up that first down? Maybe you get in a touchdown. Now it's 35 29. Maybe the momentum keeps going and. Who knows what happens from there? So you were competitive with a top 20 team on the road on national TV. And even at times when it looked like there could be certain plays that would make you fold, getting the pump block for a touchdown, getting behind 28 to 9, you didn't let it completely do you in. And it really wasn't until that dropped fourth down pass that felt like you kind of had a deflated balloon type of feeling for KU, like, oh, we had to, Keep it going here because we're not really stopping them on the defensive side of the ball. But for most of the game, you were competitive. And that is the goal in year one for Lance Leipold. Obviously, you'd love to win two or three games in this first year. But if you're just competitive, you make it interesting to watch this team play football and give you the sense that, hey, maybe this could be a game they actually pull an upset. That's what you're looking for in year one. And that is the step you have to make because last year, your average score was 46 to 15. You weren't just losing. You were getting pounded. So you got to take that step from getting blown out every game to being competitive, and then you hope you make the next step from being competitive to winning a couple games. And that's what that game against Coastal Carolina was. You were pesky. You put a little scare into them in the third quarter. You are competitive through a big portion of the game. You made it interesting to watch for a majority of the game. And your quarterback showed even more bright spots and flashes than in week one. And that gets you even more excited about his potential. I mean, we'll talk more about Jason Bean uh, later on in the show. But there were some plays that he made that you haven't been able to see from a KU quarterback in quite some time. I mean, there have been some pretty good Carter Stanley passing games in 2019. There were a few that stick out. But there were some plays Jason Bean made where he scrambled around, threw the ball downfield. That just felt a little different. You know, and he doesn't have that same receiving core that the 2019 team had, which was a pretty solid receiving core, all things considered. And then you add the running factor as well, over 100 yards rushing, the long rushing touchdown for Jason Bean. It was electric from that quarterback position. How often have you been able to say that? What you saw from the quarterback position was electric. Uh, you saw more from your prized recruit in Devin Neal in that game. You saw some sequences of success from the offensive line. That was still a mess pretty much overall, but at least there were a few plays where you opened something up, unlike the South Dakota game. Kyron Johnson continues to play really well. He made some big plays even against the run. KU's pass rush grades are actually really good. It's just they couldn't really stop the run as a team overall. And, you know, even despite the kind of complete lack of success in achieving first downs on fourth downs or the lack of success in execution or maybe in one case like the the fourth down that you went for it on your own side of the field in the first half and I should say this I agreed with every fourth down call and I have so far this season I'm glad they're being aggressive but that first one they had at their own side of the field was odd you had a fourth and very short 
You ran shotgun from your own side of the field and handed it off. That thing was bound to end up in a loss. At that point, just run a QB sneak, right? If you were going to roll out or throw the ball or run something unique out of shotgun, I'm all about that. But if you just wanted to run up the middle, just go QB sneak it or something. So I, I didn't agree with that. But, again, you were ultra aggressive, which everyone can get on board with for this team and this program. Just in general, it's a more entertaining way to watch football when your coaching staff is aggressive. But especially for a team like Kansas, we hear that all the time. Like, what do you? What else do you have to lose? Go for it. And so far, they've been ultra aggressive this year. It's a little funny, though. I don't think they've converted a fourth down so far this season. Who knows? Maybe a big reckoning's coming. Like law of averages, KU's gonna against Baylor go like five for five on th- on fourth down. <laughs> but maybe that's the difference in winning a game, right? If you do have that one hot game. There's almost a difference in the Browns beating the Chiefs last night. You see how good that can be if you have an aggressive staff with a team that can execute on fourth downs. It is quite the combination. But again, I think that was another thing. You chalk up and say that, yeah, I was glad I saw that on Friday night. They were aggressive, even though it didn't work out. Process over results. The process was right. And once again, this is another thing. So far through two games, KU has taken care of the football pretty well. And we'll see how the, how much that continues, but you haven't turned the ball over. There was a Jason Bean fumble that you were probably pretty fortunate to recover on that first drive and then go down and kick a field goal. But that's another thing you're looking for improvement on, and you did just that. Now, while there were those roses, and like I said, I think overall I came away feeling positive about where this thing's headed for KU. Obviously, there's still a lot to clean up, and it's interesting because from like a fan perspective, from where I'm sitting, I view this and go, yeah, that's progress, what we saw. But I'm sure from the coaching staff, you know, from Lance Leipold, who just came in from winning a bunch of games at Buffalo and his coaching staff and even the players, they're not sitting there thinking that. Like, sure, maybe to an extent they're saying, hey, this feels a little different where we just seem to be more competitive with these teams. I don't know. But from their standpoint, I'm sure they're looking at it as, what are you talking about? Like, our goal is to win the game. Like, we are trying to win these games. That was a disappointment for us. But from the outside perspective, I think it was. Things to clean up, though, on the other end of that. I mean, offensive line, you gave up more sacks to Coastal Carolina this year than you did last year. The offensive line is supposed to be better this year. Coastal Carolina's defensive line coming in, I, I don't know how you would view it as, as better or worse, but you have most of the guys back, so you would think that's better, but also the one guy you lost was the Sun Belt Defensive Player of the Year last year, so I don't know that you could say they're better than they were a season ago, but the line should be better. You have a more mobile quarterback, and yet you gave up more sacks to Coastal this year than you did last year. Uh, the defense missed a ton of tackles in the game. Secondary, you really saw how young the secondary was. I mean, guys were running wide open. All night long for Coastal Carolina. Grayson McCallman's 17 of 21. And then that lack of execution on key downs. And the other thing, I mean, this is something I'm monitoring all season long. We'll go over this later. The special teams was disastrous on, you could say two plays. It really is just the one. If your one disaster, so to speak, through two games on special teams was just a blocked PAT, like, yeah, that's not ideal, but. You'd shrug your shoulders and say, okay, well, worst things could happen. It, it, it was the blocked punt for a touchdown. 
that's been the ringing disaster for KU so far this season on special teams. Outside of that, special teams has actually been pretty good for KU, but that one issue is a pretty prominent issue to happen to you and something you need to get fixed moving forward and get back to what you did against South Dakota, which was have a really good special teams game. But we knew this is going to take some time for Lance Leipold fixing this KU program because you can't fix every single thing overnight and you can't fix every single thing even in one off season to begin with let alone one off season where it was a shortened off season so while the final score was heavily for Coastal Carolina and you couldn't cover the spread to indicate necessarily that it was a closer game I think you still showed enough to keep a lot of fans intrigued where this thing is heading not just from a long-term perspective but kind of with how feisty and how competitive they can be for the rest of the season, including what you can do this Saturday against Baylor. And I think that the Vegas betting line probably shows a little bit of respect for KU. Now, I might think it might be a little too much respect, but the line opened at 14 and a half. It's already up to 17 for Baylor. But if I told you before week one of the season, heck, if I even told you after the South Dakota game, when you barely beat South Dakota 17 to 14, KU was only going to be a 17-point underdog to Baylor. I think that's a smaller line than maybe any of the Big 12 games you had a season ago. Off the top of my head, I don't know what the Texas Tech one was. You would take that. And this isn't all about the betting lines, obviously not with the spread, obviously not with, with Baylor, but it's just kind of another indication, another hint that this thing does appear to go be going in the right direction for KU. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Jesse Newell talked with Travis Goff on Friday before the game. These are pretty pertinent quotes. Obviously, on Friday, it was announced by the Big 12 that four new schools were being added in BYU, Houston, UCF, and Cincinnati. There were reports as well from Dennis Dodd that the Big 12 might even undergo a second round of expansion in a couple years, come 2025. You know, you might add schools like a Memphis or a Boise State or whoever else. Some interesting quotes from Travis Goff and what he gave to Jesse Newell because, you know, a lot of people were wondering, what does this mean for KU? We've heard a lot of mostly rumors. Well, KU maybe flirting with the Big Ten or the ACC. Like, would they be extended an invite? Could they go there, et cetera, et cetera. Would they be on board with this? What are their thoughts on this? Obviously, they voted for the acceptance of those schools. Is this a backup plan for them? Is this plan A? What's what's the idea there? And we, we don't really know the answer to that. We won't probably for quite some time. But I think these are probably pretty telling from Travis Goff. So here was the, uh, one of the things he said to Jesse. It's clearly a good day for the Big 12 in terms of having alignment and taking a position of strength. It wasn't an option for the Big 12 to sit idle and to not act and to not solidify itself as much as you can in this uncertain environment. So basically saying, listen, we kind of had to make a move. And again, whether this is option A or a backup option for KU, this was the move we had to make for the long-term success of the Big 12. The question I've had all along was that if you do have one foot out the door, if you're, I don't know, if West Virginia has an option to go to the ACC, Kansas has an option to go to the Big 10, and I'm not saying that's true, but if it were, then you might not care about the long-term viability of the league, and you probably only care about the short-term of the league, which would be not adding teams because then you bring in more money with a bigger slice of the pie. But 
It sounds like BYU will join in 2023, which would give you a couple of years before that happens, and the other schools might not be able to join until 2024, though that could get negotiated down to 2023. So you at least have two years of that short-term financial flow in. Here's the important part, though, and this is what Travis Goff told Jesse in terms of money implications. Quote, we're less secure now than we were eight weeks ago and maybe significantly financially less secure. The facts are there's there's most likely a scenario where when we do a new deal with a makeup where we likely can't stay at the level we're at, meaning that, you know, budget cuts would come. I don't know if that means staffers would be laid off or if certain operating costs would go down. Do you have to cut certain sports? Do coaches, are you not going to be able to pay coaches as much money? Is that going to deter you from bringing on as strong of a football coach or being able to give a Bill Self type coach as much of a raise? What's that going to mean in terms of athletic um, improvements with you know indoor practice facilities and so forth? Are you not going to be able to do those things? He goes on to say, we have to have a plan at KU to defend ourselves against some kind of a step backward in the new media deal. And he went on to say football and fundraising are big pushes in the immediate term, right? If your football's better, that's going to help, and that's going to help with fundraising, and donations are going to come in more often. And if you have less money to work with in terms of building that stuff, you are going to rely more on the donations and, and the fundraising to bring in money so that you can be allowed some of those things that you're allowed right now that you wouldn't be if you're making half the amount of money you're making in the new Big 12 off the media deal to what you're making right now. Goff goes on to say, the reality is this is another reminder that we need to be stronger in a variety of ways. We need to be stronger in football. We need to be stronger in our philanthropic support of our programs. Again, the philanthropic support of our programs is in reference to, well, if we're making 10, 15 million less dollars on our media deal, we either got to cut certain sports, cut staff, not be able to pay guys, not be able to get facility improvements to where we're at now, or you guys are going to have to pony up the money to fill in the blanks there. You know, support of our programs, if we don't get support here without a new media deal, we might have to cut a couple of these sports. And again, the part where he says the we need to be stronger in football, obviously that goes into you get more donations if you're strong in football as well as basketball. But it's also a standpoint of, well, this makes us look better if we are going to try to jump ship at some point and we are going to try to go to the Big Ten or the ACC if those are on the table which again, we don't know, we need football to be better so it doesn't look like it's going to be the black eye of a conference. Last couple things he said. As I think back over the last couple months, I think it's been really healthy, productive exercise, and a chance for us to take an even harder look in the mirror. What does Kansas need to do to be positioned for whatever? Well, that sounds like somebody who is trying to position themselves to go to another conference like the Big Ten. What do we need to do to be positioned for whatever? Because if this was all about just staying in the Big 12, and again, I, I don't think that's not on the table. Like, I'm sure Kansas is fine staying in the Big 12, but come on, would you rather be in the Big 10 where you make $50 million with the media rights or be in the new Big 12 where you might make 15 to 20 a year? It's simple math. And Jesse, point play gas, Travis Goff, if... The Big 12 News potentially stops other conversations while pursuing what's best for KU. His answer, no. The beauty of it is when you think about being focused on what's best for Kansas, that applies to anything we do. So again, it's not him committing and saying, yeah, we're leaving the Big 12. It's far from that. But it's 
not quite a hard commitment to saying, no, we're for sure staying in the Big 12. We're we're not entertaining any other offers. It's basically, hey, we're like, a, I don't know, we're a restricted free agent right now. You know, Big 12 owns our rights. We might go back there. But for a couple of reasons, one, I mean, if you tried to leave now anyway, you'd be in the same position Texas and Oklahoma are that you got to stick around or pay the big buyout. So might as well wait till 2025 if you are going to make a move anyway. And maybe that gives you more time to, like he was saying, build up more funds, build up a, a new and improved stadium, a David Booth Stadium, to where now it's even more enticing to take you on. Very interesting quotations from Travis Goff. We'll talk with Jesse Newell more about that on Wednesday. Coming up in about 20 minutes from right now, David Lesky of Inside the Crown joins us. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash. They are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes. Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane. Unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. And most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and body wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. About 20 till 4. This is Rock Jock Sports Talk on KLWN. The Royals have now inched to two and a half back of third place. They are now five back of Cleveland for second place. David Lesky, inside the crown, joins us now. I believe last time we talked to you, they were down seven to second place Cleveland. And once what felt like an insurmountable lead, now maybe more in play. I know last week I kind of jokingly asked you about it, but... Uh, with last week, maybe it seemed impossible. This week, maybe a little more likely, a little more realistic now that they can rise up as high as second place in the division. David, yes or no? Maybe. maybe. Um, you know, there's there's a little issue that we talked about last week of actually beating the Indians, uh, <laughs> which, which they have not done except for that very first game, and then they've played 11 more after that, unfortunately. So, until they can beat them, I don't. I, I just can't see them getting the second this place. It's a new team, man. They, it's a different team, and and you know the Indians are. They seems like they've packed things up for the for the summer, so it's certainly possible. Um, I don't know. Like like I think it was, was it last week we talked about it. Yeah, um, that you know look, you kind of wish that this that the postseason was the same as last year, given how close the Royals are to second place, because they'd actually be in a race, but. It's not, and that's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the Indians look like they might be in free fall. And the best, the best uh, medicine for them has been the Royals. 
but they they don't play the Royals for another week, so they have some more time to free fall. And yeah, uh, it, it would it would not shock me, let's say, if the Royals ended up in second place this year, which would be crazy in general. But I, I think it could happen. All right, so you heard it right here, David Lusky predicting the Royals <laughs> will finish second place. We're talking about David Lusky inside yeah, the crown. That's, that's exactly. <laughs> Uh, what is your worry level for the latest results from Daniel Lynch after, you know, he struggled, went down, came back up, pitched well, and then feels like we're heading back to the beginning of that circle here. So uh, do you have a worry level at all, or do you think this is just a young pitcher kind of hitting a wall late in the season? Well, you know, I was, I was really worried after the first inning on Friday. And, yeah, because he came out that start against the White Sox, and, and, and some of it was explained, right? I mean, he had a little blister, and he said he was having trouble gripping the ball because of blood, making it slip out of his hand, which I thought, why is he on the mound at all? But whatever. they got to get second place, um, David. Yeah, it, it's very important. Um, <clears throat> but then, then, then he went out, and he just got bombed. I mean, four batters, they hit a 3 nothing lead, and four batters later, he was down by one, which is it's difficult. It's hard to do. <laughs> He's, it's impressive that he did it, but it's difficult. And I, I was very concerned. But what really encouraged me, and it's the same thing about what happened with Coar last week in Baltimore, is he bounced back. I mean, Coar gave up four runs in the first, and it only sitting gave up six runs. Okay. Lynch didn't give up another run. <laughs> he, he, he figured some things out. He looked really good from that forward. And, and I've said this before, but a lot of times with young players, but pitching specifically, when they fail, it's almost more interesting to see how they respond than just watching them dominate. And that's why Lynn coming back and, and pitching after after being in Omaha was nice to see. But then he then the league adjusted a little bit, right? I, I think, or at least I think they did. Um, and he got he got punched. He got punched pretty hard. And I, and I think those last five innings against Minnesota, he punched back, and that was really encouraging. So now you know it, with Coar with Lynch, it's a wait to the next start and see what happens. But if uh, if they if they succeed after struggles, I, I think that, that that says a lot more really than even like seven shutout innings. I think it's it's just a a, a really good thing to see. So it, it's a wait and see. But you make a good point about hitting a wall at the end of the season. I mean, especially with like Carlos Hernandez, for example, he's thrown 103 innings this year. I think 102. He never throw more than 80 in a season in minor leagues before this year. So. There's there are going to be some walls hit, and uh, I think that we have to at least think about the September numbers with that in mind. Just because these guys have never never thrown these kind of innings. I mean, Coar has he threw 140 or something like that in 2019. But you know, some of these guys, it's been a while. So that that that's a good point to have made, and, and I think that uh, I think if they do struggle, we can at least have an idea that might be part of it. But again, when Lynch bounced back, that that made me really happy to see. Okay, so we saw Lynch struggle, get sent down, come back up. Same for Jackson Kowar. Kyle Isbell, the latest in that fold, began the season with the Royals, had a under 630 OPS, got sent down, and came back up with the game uh, yesterday. And they defeated the Twins thanks to Kyle Isbell. He goes one for three, has a walk. Uh, what are your hopes for what Isbell can bring for the rest of the year for the Royals? Well, I, who knows if he's going to be out the rest of the year, first of all. Which, <laughs> uh, this, this, this team, it's just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how they handle things. But, I mean, the only reason he's on the roster is because of Michael. There was a um, family medical emergency. So, 
that's um, at least worth noting that he may not even be on the team on Tuesday or tomorrow when they play. So, but if he is up, I, I want to, I just want to see him continue what he's done in Omaha because he started off when he got sent down, he started off slow. He, I don't know if he took the demotion hard or if he was just in a slump at the big league level and his swing wasn't there at the minor league level because he was, he was just slumping because his swing wasn't quite there. Um, whatever that was, he struggled, and then he really started picking up, and the power came, and the patience came, and just in general looked so much better. Um, for I mean, it was like sixty games. It's not not a tiny sample, and that 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 was encouraging. I think that's what got him the call over, uh, you know, maybe Ryan McBroom or or something like that. And you could have put Oliveris in center, I guess. Um, but you know. I, I would just love to see him keep that swing because that, that ball he hit through the hole, yes, it was on the ground. It was a rocket. I mean, it was like 107 miles per hour off the bat. He's got a fairly controlled, violent swing, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, he, can, he can generate some hard contact, and that, that's, that's what I want to see from him. I, I think there are aspects of his game that he can probably elevate to the next level. Um, and, and I say elevate kind of as a pun because I think he needs to elevate a little bit more on the ball. But in the big leagues, I think in, in this month, if he's up for a while, and, and look, they, they just sent down Scott Blewett. Maybe Michael A. Taylor's the move coming back off the uh, family list and, and Isabel stays up. I don't know. But I just want to see him hit the ball hard. Just keep swinging the hit the ball hard, and then figure out the rest next season. But for now, just make good, solid contact. That's all I want to see. Yeah, I just I, I wouldn't understand why they like I get what you're saying. They might send him back down. I just don't understand the thought process of if they would want to do that. Wouldn't you want to at a position that is certainly going to be a question going into next year? That center field spot and just the outfield in general. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't you want to just test out what you got here for the rest of the year to see maybe if Kyle Isbell is ready to be the opening day starter next season? Absolutely, but you know the, what the weird situation we're in is that Omaha was in St. Paul, and the Royals were in Minneapolis. So Kyle Isbell was, was like 10 minutes down the road. And so you, you wonder, too, if it, if it would have been a different situation had Omaha been in Indianapolis or wherever, and not a literal Uber ride from, from the St. Paul Stadium to Target Field. So that, that might have played a role in getting him up and, and just being the guy they wanted to take a look at. But I also, I don't know, if they, if they call him up for a game, he gets the game-winning RBI, and then they send him back down when they've got all this dead weight on the roster. That, that's going to annoy me. Maybe more than the oldest situation up and down all season, just because, I mean, at least he got three days, right? I mean, he would get three or four games before he'd get sent down, and if they call his up for one game, I'm just going to be a, a little bit hurt. Okay, well, let's talk about one of those guys who at different points has been, as you referred to it, dead weight, but recently – has been picking it up pretty big as he did before he got injured. Andrew Benintendi playing really well last week. What does that mean if he does that the rest of the season for the future of his Royals career? Does it mean anything? Well, I mean, I think it does mean something. I, I did the math because I'm a nerd like that. And if he keeps up his week, his last play over the final 19 games, he's going to finish the year with a 300 average, a 345-ish on base, and 500 slugging percentage. So if he can maintain the 500 average and 970 or whatever it is slugging percentage, he is going to finish the season really well. Um, but I think what it, what it means, so the Royals have, have really three choices of Benintendi, right? They've got 
he's in his final year of arbitration. And so they can either just play that out and pay him probably eight, nine million. Um, he was owed 6.6 million this year. He's going to get an increase. Um, it depends on how, you know, if he, if he does hit 500 the rest of the season, I think he will get a bigger increase than that, but they can go that route or they can offer him an, an extension. Um, I wrote today three years, $25 million, three years, $30 million, somewhere in there. Not not huge money, but not insignificant money. Um, or they can non-tender him because they say, hey, we don't want to give you that one-year deal. You're not worth $9 million. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to do that. And I don't think that's – I don't think the third one is going to happen, especially now. Um, but I think that if he can finish this year strong, I think the extension becomes more likely. Um, obviously it takes two to tango. So if he doesn't want to do it, it doesn't matter. But if, if both sides are interested, I, I would, I would not be terribly surprised if, if there's a, a press conference and the Royals MO is to do it right before fan fest. So I'm um, like January 27th. There is a, a press conference about signing Ben and Tenny to a three year deal or four year, whatever it is. So I, I think that if he can keep this up, that makes that more likely. But otherwise, it, I mean, he's going to be on the team next year. It's just a matter of, of how many more years after that. And, and I, think, I think an extension gets more likely with every hit he gets. All right, I'm marking this right now, and we're going to circle back to this on January 27th. If that <laughs> ends up happening. Talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown here. Uh, the other guy who hasn't figured out his struggles after kind of dipping a little bit in the middle of the season, Carlos Santana. Uh, hasn't seen what Andrew Benintendi did, which was struggle and then come up. Uh, does he play for the 2022 Royals? And if not, how would they go about moving on from him? Boy, that's a good question because I, I think at this point, if if you gave Dayton more truth serum and he said, "Hey, what? what let, tell me about Santana," I think he'd say, "I wish we can get rid of him." Um, yeah, there, there was a lot of talk about the trade deadline and how. Oh, they don't want to move him. From what I heard, the Red Sox were the only option, and he was their third choice. And he was their third choice behind Kyle Schwarber, who they got, which means they never had to go to their third choice. <laughs> so I don't think he was actually in as much demand as was reported. Um, the problem is, I don't know how you can't move him. I mean, you can move him in a bad contract swap, and you might be able to get something. Like like in 2013, the Royals picked up Irvin Santana on a bad contract, and he had a really nice season. And then extended his career and obviously still pitching. Um, so it, it, they could get something of value. They could in a reclamation project, in the rotation, whoever that might be. Um, but I, I think honestly, at this point, I don't really see how they don't go into 2020, 2022. It's hard to say with Carlos Santana on the roster. Um, is he the first baseman? I don't know. I think Nick Prado is up pretty early, if not opening day. So that's, that puts Santana at DH, and you know, DH who can't hit is bad. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a tough question. Um, I think the better question, um, or at least the, the, the thing to watch, is Carlos Santana on the roster on June 1st. That, that, that to me is, is, is what I think is, is the, the marker there, because if he doesn't turn this around in the first two months of the season, they've, they've got guys. <laughs> they've got they've got Prado, they've got MJ Melendez, they've got um, you know Bobby Jr. Obviously, but even Ryan McBroom, or they've got a little bit of a logjam in the outfield. Uh, we don't know if any of them are good, but Kyle Isbell, Edward Olivares, 
I mean, all these guys, they've got, they've got possibilities out there. And you can't, you can't fill a roster spot with a guy who can only play first base or DH and can't hit. So I think, barring a Benintendi like last week for him over the last 19 games, I just, it's hard to see them being able to move him, and I don't think they'd get rid of him. Um, so, yeah, so I think June 1 is the date. And, and look, if this doesn't change, he's going to be gone. There's just, there's no reason to keep him, and, and it's, you got to eat that money. Talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown a few more minutes here. So this week, obviously off day today for the Royals, what are you on the lookout the most just this week specifically for the Royals? I mean, it's the same thing now the rest of the season. One, you want to get some wins because um, they're playing the A's and the Mariners this week, and that those are two teams that are tied for second in the West. I think they're both three games out of the AL, of the second wild card, which is actually the first wild card because I think the, the two wild cards are tied too. Um so I mean, they're these two teams are they're in it, and so it, it's I really want to see the Royals keep up their good play against good teams, um, but it's it's the young pitching. I mean, you know, they got a six man rotation, which means that over the over six games in the week, we're going to see all five of them. I want to see Brady Singer not be terrible. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to see five more home runs. I want to see how Coar and Lynch respond from their bad first innings that they responded to in game, but I want to see how they do it after some rest and, and getting a chance to look back and see what they did wrong in those first innings. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about Hernandez too. He did not, he got the numbers were really good. Six shutout innings, obviously, but I mean, he walked three and struck out one. And he, like I said, he may be hitting the end of the wall too. So I'm, I'm watching that pretty closely, but it, it's a good test. It's a good test in September when you've got two teams who are within a sweep of a playoff spot, basically. Um, Anytime you're within three games, it, 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 you're, you can be in a different position in three games, obviously. So um, it, it's a good test for these guys, and hopefully they can pass it and, and knock some teams off their playoff spots. He is David Lesky, Inside the Crown. Subscribe to his Substack today. David, thank you so much for the time as always, and uh, I guess not talk to you next Monday because the Royals have a doubleheader during the show, but maybe talk to you sometime right. next week. <laughs> We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. There we go. (laughs) All right, that is David Lusky of Inside the Crown joining us here on RCST. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? Uh Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the moons. Instead of focusing Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was right now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. Welcome into Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is Case of the Mondays here on KLWN, where, you know, you might have been entranced in watching all the football over the weekend. It's College Football Saturday, NFL Sunday, your first full slate of football. You may have missed out on some of the other sports stories that occurred over the weekend, so let's get to them with our case of the Mondays. First up, in one of the weirdest headlines of all time related to sports, after a report that Michigan Athletic Director Ward Manuel apologized to Chris Webber for the fallout of everything at the end of his career, if you remembered, he was investigated by the NCAA, so forth. Manuel now denies that he apologized. Okay, this is not Manuel denying that he did something wrong. This is him denying that he issued an apology. He's not denying he did something wrong. He's denying he did something right. 
Here's the quote from Ward Manuel, the Michigan 80. I enjoyed the conversation with Chris when we met several years ago, but I can assure you I made no apology to Chris. And for those who may be curious, I never asked him to apologize to the University of Michigan. I wish Chris nothing but the best, and I'm happy that he's being inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. This is incredible. Like, have a reconciliation and apologizing like that that's a good thing especially for something like this it was so dumb how the Michigan players from the Fab Five and and Chris Weber have kind of been treated by the athletic department of the school that like hey we're not going to honor you at games we're going to take down the banner all that stuff and now you have an opportunity to make up for that somebody else leaked or Chris Weber said that you apologize to him and instead of being like yes you say no I didn't apologize to him like what how much of an idiot can you be this is basically saying like oh hey we're getting some positive press here we're getting in the positive limelight everybody loves a redemption story of course I should you know issue an apology for Something stupid I said. And yet, he's basically just saying, no, I don't want the positive press. I don't want the positive news. Let's just keep it negative. I did not apologize. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Stupid. Stupid. Ward Manual, you're fired. You're fired, bud. New person of the AD role. Uh, today's case of the Monday is also going to be case of the Mondays is going to be very heavy on baseball. First up, Francisco Lindor had a three home run game last night. It's the first of his career. It's also the first in the Subway Series history, which is the games between the New York Yankees and the New York Mets. That's incredible that it's the first one of that, but I guess three home run games are, are pretty rare. What added to it was that the Yankees were accused by Lindor and the Mets of whistling to batters because Taiwan Walker, the day before, was supposedly tipping pitches. And the Yankees dug out. They were whistling to get the attention of the hitters to alert of them of a certain pitch. Kind of similar, but also very different to what happened with the Astros. We'll get to that in a second. So when Lindor rounded the bags on his second bomb of the three he hit, he turned toward Glaber Torres, the shortstop, and made a whistling motion with his fingers to his lips. And, you know, the game from there was pretty chippy. You had players come out of the dugout later on in the game. It, it's funny how the Astros were the prime culprit, and, I mean, for good reason. But, like, you can do research and find that there were teams that thought the Dodgers and the Yankees and obviously the Red Sox that caught for it were doing stuff as well. And I'm sure many others who didn't get caught we're cheating to some extent doing something similar that the Astros were, but just the one culprit got caught. That's just my opinion. Um, I believe the Yankees got like a letter from Rob Manfred about the investigation, and they made sure that through a court of law that nobody could release the information publicly about what they found about the game. Just very weird stuff. So I'm sure there's more teams that... We're cheating to begin with. This is a scapegoat. But also, this is a little different. Like, on one hand, it does show you, like, okay, yeah, this happens a lot more than you think. Like, you know, yes. But the difference was the Astros were using technology. And 
it's kind of part of the game to, I don't know, uh, like, this can kind of be argued about in the whole stupid unwritten rules part of baseball, but I'm sure some people would tell you, well, stealing signs and, you know, picking up with the catchers flashing down at home if you're at second base and seeing if a pitcher's tipping pitches, like, that's part of baseball. Maybe it is. It's just kind of funny that it's kind of similar to what the Astros did. Again, that was technology-aided, which that's not okay, using cameras and stuff, banging on a trash can. But um, I don't really even care about the whistling and the cheating part. I just love the fact that in baseball, a sport that needs more excitement, you had this happen. You know, there should be more trash talking. The NBA, you, you hit a big three over somebody, you do a little dance, or you say something to the other guy. In baseball, we've gotten so tight-knit that if you do anything outside of just round the bases and go touch home, it's like, oh, can you believe this? Are you serious? No, it's fun. It's sports. Speaking of fun, Max Scherzer had a lot of it. He logged his 3,000th career strikeout over the weekend. Makes him the 19th player ever with 3,000 strikeouts. And he's now one of seven players to reach that plateau while also earning three Cy Young awards in his career. All six other players to do that part of it are in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I don't even think it's a question at this point. Like, Max Scherzer is going into the Hall of Fame. He's won those three Cy Youngs. He's been to countless All-Star games. He started All-Star games. Um, Still got time in front of him. Now 3,000 career strikeouts. He's been a dominant pitcher for the past decade plus and helped lead Washington to the World Series. He might get another ring this year with the Dodgers. But he looks like there is no signs of slowing down. And this is... Something that we're seeing a little bit with some pitchers in recent memory, like Justin Verlander, until he had Tommy John, was really dealing into his late 30s. And who knows, maybe next year when he's back, he'll be back to his old self. He's 37 years old, and he looks as good as ever. He nearly pitched a perfect game in that outing that got him to 3,000 career strikeouts. He actually has, on the season, his best career ERA in a single season. And... So far since being traded to the Dodgers, he's made eight starts. He has a 6-0 record with a 0.88 ERA. His K per nine on the season is even in the top three highest of his career. He might be having his best season in his career, a career that includes three other Cy Young awards and countless all-star appearances. He might be having his best season at age 37. It's absolutely incredible. Also, what this means for the Dodgers. I mean, at the time when the Dodgers made this trade for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner, I think a lot of people wondered if this would make the Dodgers unstoppable. And it pretty much has to a certain standpoint. They've caught up on the Giants a little bit, but they're still not in first of the division. It still feels like they'll eventually catch them over the final three weeks of the season. But who knows? But either way, what it has done is the MLB postseason is one of the biggest crapshoot postseasons there are. It's like the MLB postseason and March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament, are very much, and and MLB might even be more so, just because, I mean, you have less teams, so there's professionals on every, right? Um, The difference between your first team and your worst team is going to be tighter than your first team and worst team in, in March Madness, who's in the field. But anybody can win a baseball game any given day already, and there is a little more variance in the MLB postseason, especially compared to some other sports, and I think that makes it very exciting. It almost feels like that variance isn't going to apply to the Dodgers this year. So you could say, oh, man, wow, the Dodgers are stacked, but that's dangerous being in a one-game wild card. 
Because anything can happen. Well, if Max Scherzer's on the mound and he has a .880 ERA with the Dodgers and they have nine All-Stars in the lineup, like, is it, is it really that much of variance that's going to come? Because they're just going to win that game and then they're going to go through and, you know, their number two pitcher will start the next series, but their number two pitcher will be like Walker Bueller, who, like Walker Bueller might even win the Cy Young over Max Scherzer. It's incredible what this team has and making that trade for Max Scherzer. This, I, I don't even know. This might not even be hyperbole. I mean, I mean, this might be the most star-studded team I've ever seen in baseball. Now, I'm not going to speak on, you know, something that happened in the 1920s or 1930s. You could argue some of those Yankees teams, but it's one thing to have a star-studded lineup. It's one thing to have a star-studded pitching staff. It's another to have both. And the Dodgers have, like, an all-star, basically, as their number four in the rotation. Like, Clayton Kershaw, maybe the best pitcher of the the last 20 years, is their number three, Julio Urias, who's, like, 17-3, and three, is the number four. Are you kidding me? And Max Scherzer leads off the top. He is absolutely incredible and continues to be so this year. Uh, last one in baseball, Corbin Burns and Josh Hader combined for a no-hitter. And that actually creates a new MLB record. That is the ninth no-hitter of the season. It's weird because I feel like I didn't really hear much about this. I saw it just like randomly on the ESPN ticker. And I felt like there was like a very small amount of like sports center attributed to it. I felt like there wasn't a lot of like talk on it. I don't know. Maybe this was just my own echo chamber kind of looking at it that way. But I feel like it didn't really get blown up. The fact that not just that it happened but that it was the new MLB record for no-hitters in a season. And what, what makes it even more crazy that it didn't feel like it was talked up a bunch, it came from Corbin Burns, who's like, I don't know, a top three, top four Cy Young candidate in the MLB, and Josh Hader, who is maybe the best closer in the game right now. And that's just kind of where we're at right now with these no-hitters. They, they've just been so watered down. By getting this record, it's made it worse. And, and that is so funny because... What other records, the the longer the record goes or the more you get toward getting the record or the more you accrue, what other records do we get bored by the more that there is, right? Like if, if a quarterback throws eight passing touchdowns and the record's seven, you're not getting less excited when he hits the seventh touchdown or when he gets the eighth touchdown to break the record. It's like, oh, that's awesome. You're not, when a, when a guy hits his 600th home run or 700th home run, you're not like, ah, not another one of these. Come on, man. Couldn't have hit a single this time. That's where we are with no hitters. It's wild. It's like, we don't want them anymore. Take it back. Return it. Now, if it's a perfect game, hmm, now you piqued my interest because perfect game still, there's been less than 30 in MLB history, and that is very rarefied air. But the no-hitters, between the sticky stuff earlier in the season, between a bunch of just random guys and bullpen games, pitching no-hitters this year, just doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal anymore. It just seems like it's the same thing as if you go to a game and you see a guy hit two home runs in a game. It's like, oh, that was cool. I got to see Albert Pujols hit two home runs in a game. But, you know, it's not going to be a story I tell, like, my kids, like, oh, you wouldn't believe the game I went to back in my day. It just doesn't seem like that's the case with no-hitters anymore. Uh, finally, rapid-fire weekend notes. Ronaldo made his return with Manchester United, started, scored two goals. Daniel Medvedev, 
I believe that's how you pronounce it. Probably not. He upended Novak Djokovic in the U.S. Open in the men's final. And KU great Paul Pierce inducted into the Hall of Fame of having a good time. Oh, he was also inducted into the Hall of Fame of basketball. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. That's your case of the Mondays on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Week one of the NFL season, not yet done. Still another game tonight. The Ravens taking on the Raiders. And the Ravens are four-point favorites. But remember, BMAC pointed this out to me on Friday. The Raiders were underdogs to the Saints last year on Monday Night Football to open up the season in Vegas. And they pulled the upset on the Ravens. Or on the Saints, excuse me. So who knows? Maybe history repeats itself. If the Ravens lose this one, they are going to be full desperation mode against the Chiefs next week, which they already were. And that, that honestly, is another big reason why it was important for the Chiefs to win that first game. Now, we always hear that stat about, hey, teams who start 0-2, like you only make the playoffs X percent of the time, and it's some, like, low percentage. Maybe that'll be completely different now with a 17-game season. Just that one extra game could be the difference. But it's a pretty tough start of the schedule. For the Chiefs, when you look at it, if you would have lost that game, you're at Baltimore next Sunday night, then you're home against the Chargers at Philadelphia, who Philadelphia looked pretty good in week one. Bills at home at Washington, who won the division a season ago at Tennessee, and then you finally kind of break off with the Giants at home. But then after that, it's the Packers. Who knows what to think of them, which brings us to our week one overreactions. First up in our week one overreactions, if this was a first half of the game overreaction, I would say Chiefs have the worst defense of all time, but instead, let's start with a good defense. Philadelphia Eagles have a top five defense in the NFL, and quite frankly, they might need it to be to contend for a playoff bid. They absolutely dominated the Falcons 32-6, to and the Falcons aren't a great team or anything, but the one thing you thought about the Falcons was that the offense should be solid, right? It should be somewhere in the middle of the league. Well, the Eagles held Matt Ryan, Calvin Ridley, Kyle Pitts, Mike Davis and company to six points in that game. Matt Ryan was held to a 17.6 QBR, and the Eagles defensive line wound up with three sacks and nine quarterback hits. They dominated the game. I was really impressed what I saw from that Eagles defense. The division is going to be the best way to the playoffs for anybody in this division. Giants, I don't think, after watching in week one, I just kind of picked them as a surprise to make the playoffs. I'm totally out on that. Week one overreaction uh, from there. Cowboys, I would say probably favorites for the division. Washington, you saw the defense, but Ryan Fitzpatrick out. They're probably not going to repeat. Seems like it's between the Eagles and the Cowboys to win the division for me. But the Cowboys offense is really good. That's what makes it interesting with the Eagles, what they have defensively. And if they do end up having a top five defense and that defensive line continues to look like that, and it's not just a product of how bad the Falcons could be, This team might be kind of interesting to keep an eye on the rest of the way. Offensively, you know, Jalen Hurts had a pretty nice game, but more on that in a little bit. Uh, Jared Goff is just fine. This is, uh, I don't even know why I called this an overreaction to call a quarterback just fine. And, okay, here's here. let's do this for an overreaction. It was not all about Sean McVay for Jared 
Jared Goff. Uh, raw stats-wise, we're great against the 49ers defense. 338 yards, three touchdowns to just one interception. Almost led a game-winning touchdown drive late. But when you look more into it, he was under six yards in attempt. QBR was under 25. He really struggled until the end of that game to kind of pad the stats. And QBR keeps that in account. The fact that, you know, when you're down a certain amount and it's at a certain point in the game, it doesn't give you as much credit for the padding of stats. Though, it's hard for me to decipher how you view that. Because if you're not going to give him credit for, quote-unquote, padding his stats late in the game when it changed from 41-10 to to 41-33, then are you going to give him you know, credit for what happened on, on the fourth quarter drive. Like it actually ended up being a game. So all those previous drives where at the time felt like stat padding ended up not being stat padding because of the fact that you ended up having a chance to tie the game late. You got to the 49ers, what 25 yard line and had like second and 10 or something like that with 20 or 30 seconds to go. So at that point in hindsight, it wasn't stat padding. I, I don't know what to think of that, but that's just kind of Jared Goff. You might put up some solid raw numbers, but he's not a top 10 quarterback or anything. He's fine, and surely Sean McVay helped him, but he at least achieved a bit of success in a game without him. And let's be honest, without any good wide receivers on the Detroit Lions, hey, who's catching these passes? Like Quintez Cephas? Yeah, no thanks. Okay, so Sean McVay overrated. No, uh, Sean McVay not needed for Jared Goff to have at least a little bit of success. That doesn't feel like an overreaction. Let's go a little more overreactory. Kyler Murray is going to win MVP. And Chandler Jones, to add to it, is going to win Defensive Player of the Year. Cardinals are going to sweep those two awards. Murray went 21 of 32 for 289 yards, four touchdowns to one interception. He had 20 rushing yards with a score. And it's not just the numbers. If you saw any of the games, some of the magic that he pulled off scrambling was incredible. The one that comes to mind, if you watched it all, I'm sure you're thinking of the same one. Rolls to the right, rolls to the left, scrambles up, has to backpedal again, fires downfield, gets the huge completion. I don't know how you tackle this guy. He is just a lightning bug darting around behind the pocket. And it doesn't hurt either that, you know, when you look at the weapons around him, that's a pretty special unit. Chase Edmonds, I think, is going to be a good running back. Um, you have James Conner as a backup who, you know, he's fine. But this is more about the receivers that he's throwing to. When you combine the ability for him to move the pocket, keep plays alive, and now it only gives extra time for what's already a really good receiving core to get open. DeAndre Hopkins is a top five receiver in the NFL. A.J. Green hasn't really produced a ton lately, but if he's your, what, number three, number four receiver, okay, that'll work. Christian Kirk was a monster on Sunday. And Rondale Moore, who you took early in the NFL draft, could be like a dark horse rookie of the year candidate. This is a really good offense. And the biggest key, if you're just talking about this overreaction, which is Kyler Murray winning the MVP, they'd have to make the playoffs, which they didn't do last year. And I think they can do this year. The issue has been that Cliff Kingsbury in the past has had these strong starts. They started 6-2 and two last year, and they ended 8-8. Eight and eight. And you look at his time at Texas Tech, it's kind of the same thing. Had strong starts, bad finishes. That needs to change. I'm not saying Kyler Murray is better than Patrick Mahomes. Certainly not. 
But sometimes when the MVP, you get a little voter fatigue. Sometimes you need the narrative. And Kyler, to me, looks like a very real candidate to win this award, especially with the way they eviscerated a division favorite in Tennessee. And the other part of that was the defense. As I mentioned, with Chandler Jones, you held the Titans to 13 points. You held Derrick Henry to 3.4 yards per carry. Julio Jones had just 29 receiving yards. Most of all, Ryan Tannehill was sacked six times for a collection of 56 yards. Lost five of those six sacks coming from Chandler Jones, who, in my opinion, has got to be the by far and away favorite to win defensive player of the year. I actually looked at Bovada this morning. I mean, why would you not do this right now? You can get him at 20-1 to 1 to win defensive player of the year as of this morning. That wasn't even like the top five odds. I think he was like sixth. He's got five sacks. If they make the playoffs and he gets to 20 sacks, that's a knockdown that he's winning the award. So and he did most of his work in the first week. Now he just needs, I say just, it's still a lot, but it's not like unthinkable. 15 sacks in the final 16 games. That's much more doable. And then basically at that point, he's going to win it. It's interesting because this guy wanted to be traded, Chandler Jones, in the offseason. He's a free agent. I know that got thrown out there a little bit. Never really anything materialized. But if the Frank Clark stuff turned into enough to void his contract, you had the money available if that would have happened. Would you have gone out and risked it for, at that point, basically a rental in Chandler Jones, who would be a free agent at the end of the year, and just say, hey, we'll take it for the pass rush? Well, that would have been pretty nice. You would have had two guys who combined for seven sacks over the course of Sunday, but he is going to get paid this offseason and absolutely dominant for the Arizona Cardinals in that first game over Tennessee. Sticking in the NFC West for a couple more. This might just end up being the NFL Week 1 NFC West overreactions. The Rams are going to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. It's not just about dominating 34-14 to over the Chicago Bears, and it can't be because, like, congrats, you beat up on Andy Dalton. It's also about my preseason pick to win the NFC was the Green Bay Packers, which, uh, yikes. I mean, when you look at what the Rams did in that first game, we had built up this idea that Matt Stafford just didn't have the pieces around him in Detroit, and sometimes it got a little overblown. But still, I mean, there was a, there was a certain truth to it and that he was a better quarterback than he was getting credit for. And that now that he's going with a QB guru and an offensive guru in, in Sean McVay, see what he did with Jared Goff, that Matt Stafford was going to have this like MVP-level season. Well, surely looked like it. And when 20 of 26, 321 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions against a Bears defense, which, yes, it's not the same Bears defense from three years ago. That was the best defense in the NFL, but it's certainly going to be probably, what, a solid defense, a better-than-average defense, and he just torched them easily. That was enough for me to say, combined with what we already know about this team, the receiving weapons you have around him, what Sean McVay can do for an offense. Typically, they've had a good offensive line the past couple years, and you know, the defense last year was really, really good. When you add all that up to a team that has had playoff success that won a playoff game last year that went to the Super Bowl a couple years ago seems like they got even better now with Matt Stafford and again when you look around the NFC like who are the other teams you would view as Super Bowl contenders obviously the Tampa Bay Buccaneers be at the top of that list um, the rest of the NFC West 
the Saints after that against the Packers, I, I would still consider the Packers even after that bad first game. I, I remember they got blown out by the Chargers either last year or the year before and still made it to the NFC Championship game. Um, And, yeah, the Bucks got blown out by the Saints last year, and that actually worked out for them. So maybe that'll be the, the kiss of good luck for the Packers this season. But when I look at that list, I'm not going to trust Jameis in the playoffs. I think the Rams are the best team in the NFC West, so I'm going to take them over the others. Packers, I mean, yikes. Bucks would be the biggest competition, but it's really hard to repeat. So Rams going to the Super Bowl. Overreaction. All right, last NFC West one. The NFC West is going to get all three wild cards into the NFL playoffs. Uh, Bears stink. Lions, bad. Vikings lost to the Bengals. Don't look that much better than they were last year when they were just kind of a middling team and weren't a playoff team anyway. Okay, so you don't have to worry about those for playoff contention. I already talked about the NFC East. You know, I'm not going to pick the Washington football team with Taylor Heineke or the Giants to make the playoffs. I guess maybe whoever's worse of the Eagles and Cowboys, but I don't know who's the fourth best team in the NFC West. That's probably the first question. Is it the Rams, 49ers, Seahawks, or Cardinals? And then once you pick whichever one you think is the worst, still picking that team over probably either the Cowboys or the Eagles. And then in the NFC South, I guess the only wrench here would be if the Saints and Bucks make it. But I still, I don't know why. I, I still can't get on board with the fact that the Saints are going to be a playoff team, even after everything that I saw. Like, I think they're going to be a team that, you know, I had them going like 8-9, and 9-8 nine, nine and eight before the season. Maybe they skip them to 10-7, so maybe this is enough to throw a big enough wrench. But that's the one. There's a lot of good teams in the NFC West. That's probably the worst overreaction. All right, last one. Quick overreaction to young quarterback play. Mac Jones, solid. Jalen Hurts, better this year than last year. Justin Herbert is a star. Joe Burrow, Bengals should throw more. He's good. Daniel Jones, still a prototypical garbage time scorer and fumbling machine. Tua, still no clue if he's good or not. Zach Wilson, bad. Trevor Lawrence, ruined by Urban Meyer, but... Had a similar bad game to what Andrew Luck did in his first game. And that's been kind of the common comparison for Trevor Lawrence. All right, those are the quick re reactions to the young quarterback play. And overall, those are our overreactions to the first week of the NFL season. Two hours down, one to go. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, Derek's Deep Deliberations, KU Football Edition. Five o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. KU football falling short to Coastal Carolina. Couldn't cover the spread. The most disappointing part of it all, uh, especially when you think of how close they could have been. Missed PAT or blocked PAT is a better way of putting it. Missed two-point conversion because you had the PAT blocked. Pump blocked for a touchdown. A couple fourth downs that don't go your way including the one where you were driving really close to their territory and just a drop pass. And at the end, not opting to kick the field goal, going forward on fourth down, which was the right call, by the way. Like, come on, you you don't kick that field goal if you're Lance Leipold. I know, you know, like the covering the spread thing, but no, you don't care about that. Um, but still, you had a chance to score at the end there, even without kicking a field goal, just with trying to get a touchdown. And... Going forward on fourth down, getting some reps for those guys and couldn't. So, so close to covering the spread, but unable to do so. So, so far, KU 0-2 on 
against the spread this year. 17-point dogs to Baylor. Seems like a little bit of a light line, but maybe Vegas knows something that we don't. All right, let's get on to the segment of Mondays here. It is called Derek's Deep Deliberations. And once again, KU Football Edition following KU Football Games. Jason Bean is definitely the right guy quarterback. That is my first deliberation. I had somebody comment to me that he is Lamar Jackson, basically. And you know what? I mean, why not? Why not? He could be Lamar Jackson. Probably not, but this is the KU version of Lamar Jackson, which is pretty cool. Um, And I, I reserve my right to change my opinion over the course of the dog days of the Big 12 season in this. But he seems like he is going to be the guy the rest of the season. His legs are a game changer, especially behind this offensive line, which struggles. Over 100 rushing yards. He had that long rushing touchdown. He's actually just the second Kansas quarterback to wind up with over 100 yards rushing in a game. The only other quarterback, get this ready if we ever do RCST Trivia Football Edition, this one might be on there, Bill Whittemore did it since 2000. He did it twice, actually, did uh, old Bill Whittemore. But Jason Bean, the only other quarterback besides him to do it. And, yeah, okay, maybe KU hasn't had the most mobile quarterbacks, right? 100 yards is a lot to ask. Even Todd Reesing, he was more mobile in the pocket than he was running downfield. But you would have thought somebody maybe would have got one eventually. Even, like, there were a few, what, Charlie Weiss games where you were basically running, like, triple option or just, like, a, a running attack the whole way through. So, I mean, pretty impressive. It, it's just different than what you've seen with Jason Bean. And even with the rushing, he still made big plays on throws down the field. Now, the completion percentage, the consistency, those are still works in progress. We talked about that last week. But you got the big plays downfield in the passing game, and he continues to flash that higher potential than we've seen from a KU quarterback in many years. I mean, you can go back to Carter Stanley in 2019 – production-wise, but I think the potential, the height of what Jason Bean could be when you look at all his skill sets, his tools, are even higher than that. Now, if you can get Carter Stanley-level production, you absolutely take that, but you also figure, you know, Carter Stanley did that as a senior. He's still got a couple years left with Jason Bean. He's listed as a junior, but that didn't count last year with the extra year, so you could still get a couple years out of him. Now, this week is the true test. You got a stout Baylor defense, they're top 15 in the country by ESPN SP Plus on defense. But so far, through two weeks, I think you've gotten more from that quarterback position than I think you could have ever expected from that spot. And that is a nice little win. Thought number two, or deliberation number two, Devin Neal is the best running back option on this team, or at least is a better running back option than Velton Gardner. Neither one jumped off the page in stats. 11 carries, 40 yards, and a touchdown for Neal. 8 for 31 for Velton Gardner, both under 4 yards per carry. It just feels like you get more consistent play from Devin Neal. And while Gardner gives you a better chance to bust a big play, Velton Gardner also gives you a better chance to endure a negative play. He had the drop pass on that fourth down. He had a big loss of yards a few plays before that that even put you in a situation where you had to kind of go for it. And Andy Kononicki talked about this in the offseason, about it's better to be good consistently than great occasionally. 
I feel like that applies here. Gardner might give you more great, more home run balls, but I feel like from what we've seen from Devin Neal, you're getting more consistency in that position. It's the little things, too. I mean, Devin Neal had a 55 pass play grade. Gardner's was 30. Neal had a 74 pass block grade. Gardner's was 64. So, like, you're getting a little better on, on the margins there with some of the smaller things. And it was it was very close with the two logging snaps. Gardner had 30 snaps in the game. Devin Neal logged 28. But that's a pretty substantially closed gap from week one when Devin Neal had one carry in the game and Velton Gardner was getting all the work pretty much at running back until Tory Lachlan kind of came in. I just, listen, like, Velton Gardner's never going to not play. Velton Gardner's going to play, and Velton Gardner should play. I'm not saying that this should be, oh, but it's 100% Devin Neal. I just believe that Devin Neal should be playing more than Velton Gardner at this point, and instead of it being something where Velton Gardner's getting the majority of the carries, and even if it's a basically close to a 50-50 split like last game, to me, Devin Neal should be getting, I don't know, 60%, 70% of the split there with Velton Gardner. Again, you're going to have running backs get tired. They're going to get banged up. You're going to have certain things that you might want another guy in there for. You don't just completely discard it. You're going to have use for those other guys. But to this point, it seems to me like Devin Neal is better than Velton Gardner. Now, the depth chart came out. Velton Gardner still listed as the starter for KU football. Based on where you were in week one, to getting to last week in terms of the snap count, Devin Neal's definitely definitely trending that way, and it wouldn't surprise me if he does end up getting more snaps this next game than Velton Gardner has. Also not sure in regards to this running back position what was up with Amori Pesek-Hickson. He's still a guy I hope for that I think he could actually end up being the best running back in the room, but I don't know. Maybe they're just trying to ease him in. Obviously, last week there was word that he was practicing but he was still kind of day-to-day, week-to-week, so you weren't getting a full Amori Pesek-Hickson. He missed the first week of the season. And he, he showed up late in that Coastal Carolina game, kind of with the backups. I don't necessarily view that as an indication of, oh, well, he's just buried on the depth chart. I think it's more of an indication of, hey, this guy's been dealing with these injuries. We want to kind of slowly work him back into the into the thick of things. And I wouldn't be surprised if he has a a bigger role moving forward as soon as Saturday, but maybe it takes a couple weeks. Maybe it takes the Duke game. Maybe it takes two, three, four weeks for him to get reacclimated coming off that injury because he is week to week. But I do think eventually he'll have a big role in the running back room. I just don't have an idea when. Deliberation number three, the offensive line still has tons of work to do. Obviously, you watched the game. You know that too. KU gave up more sacks, they gave up six to Coastal Carolina in the game on Friday than they did a season ago. And we spent plenty of time talking about how bad the Kansas offensive line was last year. And yet, this year's team, which has a more mobile quarterback, which you think would help you getting away from sacks, which has older players, which has more experienced players, which has some new players, and you would think better players transferring in, facing off against Coastal Carolina defense that, yes, on one hand, they returned most of the defense, so maybe they're better, but also they lost on the defensive line the Sun Belt Defensive Player of the Year. So you would think from that standpoint, okay, they have worse personnel than last year, unless everybody improved to overcome that. You have better personnel, you have a more mobile quarterback, and yet you gave up more sacks this time around. 
than you did last year. Now, I guess you can also point to, you know, play calling different. The scheme's going to be different. It, it could lead to different things. But you were hoping for a nice little improvement in the offensive line. So far, we haven't seen it this year. Through two games, K ranks 117th in pass blocking grade. I guess that is slight improvement because they were 128th, I believe, last season. So you've moved up a little bit. 112th in run blocking grade. That's very disappointing as well. And here's KU's pass blocking grades from that second game. If we just go across the five offensive linemen, Mike Nowitzki led the way at 57. Is that of 100? Clark at 53, Ford at 43, Cable do at 32, Bostic scored a zero. So week one against South Dakota was really bad run blocking. Week two still didn't have good run blocking, though it was a little better. But week two was more about the bad pass blocking. So you've seen a really bad run blocking game. You've seen a really bad pass blocking game. Not really good start for a unit that I've said all along, like this to me is the most important unit just in terms of being able to evaluate other positions. Because how can you properly evaluate the quarterback if you're not blocking for him? Now, again, they've done a better job than last year. But it's not by a sizable margin. And the six sacks that Coastal Carolina had in that game were game-wrecking plays. You were competitive in the game overall. You shore up the offensive line. You shore up some of the special teams' mistakes. You shore up some of the tackling. I know that's a lot to shore up. All of a sudden, you're in it even more with a team who's ranked in the top 20 on the road. So offensive line takes a while to get going. But so far, we haven't really seen a ton of flashes to think that that's going to necessarily be the case. And again, stay Baylor front this week. That should be pretty good. Could be kind of problematic for the KU offense. Uh, deliberation number four. Not sure if it's Coastal Carolina having just amazing athletes, which, I mean, it's definitely possible. They've obviously got a really good team. Or if it's KU just having issues themselves or a combination of both. But tackling wasn't great for KU in that game against Coastal. And if it is an athlete thing, that doesn't bode well for some of these high-powered offenses in the Big 12. Because if you were out-athleted against Coastal Carolina, what does that mean against Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, TCU, Baylor, on and on and on down the list? But KU is just 84th in tackling grade. They're 112th in run defense grade so far this year. And at the heart of a defense tackling, the first thing that I think about are linebackers. You know, if you're a good tackling unit, usually your linebackers are good at tackling. Linebacking core had a really rough go of it against Coastal Carolina. Rich Miller was kind of the exception. I thought he played well on first watch and, you know, got backed up pro football focus. He had the, the highest grade on defense, over 70. Nick Channel played one snap at linebackers, so not counting him. But if you look at the other linebackers, you got a 48 grade from Nate Betts, 47 from Gavin Potter, 28 grade from Taiwan Berryhill. It's just scary because this unit was a big question coming into the year, same as the offensive line for KU. It was a question last year. And so far, it hasn't really shown to be a completely different story. It's probably a reminder that all this stuff takes time with the coaching staff, and it is going to be a long-haul process of not just recruiting, bringing in your players, but having these kids in the program, what you're doing consistently for not just one summer, but for one, two, three, four years. 
So still room for improvement, linebackers and offensive line. That's what I'll be watching out for Saturday for Baylor if they can kind of take those small steps forward. Next deliberation. I still believe in the secondary's talent and long-term potential, but it is going to be a rough season this year for that back end for KU. Grayson McCall went 17 of 21 for 245 yards. He had two touchdowns, no interceptions through the air. Now, he's definitely a really good QB. I mean, he got a Heisman vote last year, but guys were just wide open, it felt like. This wasn't just Grayson McCall picking apart your defense and threading the needle. No, I mean, there were there were guys that were wide open. I think it's really just a reminder for KU that the secondary is so young collectively. You think about the corner position outside of Jeremy Webb. It's all underclassmen. You look at the backup safeties with OJ Burrows and Jason Gilliam. Freshmen. It's a really young unit. And... To this point, KU's 102nd in the country in pass coverage grade. I'll say this. While Coastal did have guys, like I said, pretty much wide open on every pass, I'm sure their style of play with the running game, where you get sucked up into the run basically on this spread triple option, it does make those passes a bit more surprising. I mean, there were times when the secondary was getting demolished by receivers, tight ends, out in the open field on the outside for Coastal Carolina to help open up even more the running game. And that's going to take a toll on you as a defensive back, and then you start getting sucked into that, and all of a sudden you kind of forget your pass coverage duties and you give it open. That's why you see typically like a triple option team like an Army or Air Force. It won't be a high completion percentage, but the quarterback will be like, oh, he went one of four, but that one pass went for 73 yards and a touchdown. You know, you don't do it a ton, but the goal is to kind of lull the defense to sleep. Now, it's, it's not to that level. You still threw it 21 times. That was a little discouraging, but I'm sure that can be a tough thing for DBs to kind of acclimate to, especially for a young unit with KU is. And in the end, Bryant and Dotson, under a 60 pass coverage grade. Deuce Mayberry was in the 30s. He had a tough game. There's going to be a lot of those types of games, the low games this season for KU. But I still think there's going to be some high moments as well for the secondary. There is a lot of talent there. There is a lot of youth there. And that position is going to take time for those guys to improve, for those guys to get accustomed to the college game, for those guys to hit their level of play. It might be next season. It might be in a couple years from now. But I think that's going to kind of fester a lot of highs and lows from that position this season, which is okay with where KU is building up to. Last deliberation. Update on the special teams. Okay, week one, we had KU as a plus two in our big special teams plays. And again, if you're new to this, decided last week, going to start charting KU special teams in a very kind of vague, overarching way of looking at how they've done. I mean, if you look at Pro Football Focus, you look at ESPN SB+, they're actually a top 40 special teams unit on both, even despite some of the issues against Coastal Carolina. But I'm just going to look at it from a simple way. If you made a big play, you get a positive one. If you made a negative play, you get a minus one. So if the other team hits a 50-yard field goal, that's not a positive or a negative. They made the play. But if you hit a 50-yard field goal, you get a positive play. Now, if you hit a 32-yard field goal, that's a neutral play. doesn't count for either. You should hit a 32-yard field goal. You should hit a PAT. But that brings us to the positives and negatives for this week. I think positive, first drive of the game. KU went down, hit a 46-yard field goal. All right, plus one. They're off to a good start. And then the negatives started 
It's actually less negatives than I thought coming in. They had the PAT blocked on the first touchdown. And I honestly even debated having this one as a negative play because at the end of the day, it's only one point. But then again, it is a point scoring opportunity. I kind of think that like a missed field goal or PAT, anything like, I don't know, under 35 yards maybe. In the NFL, anything under like 40 or maybe even 45. But in college, maybe anything like 35 or under, I'll chalk it up as, as a negative play. So I'll count that as a negative play, having the PAT blocked. And then obviously the big negative play. Some negative plays, some positive plays are more negative or more positive than other positives. And this negative was the most negative you can get on a negative play. I'm not going to give it a minus two. We'll just keep the simple math. Minus one plus one. Uh, but they had the pump blocked and returned for a touchdown. That was a big minus one. So they were a minus one in that game. Again, if you want to weigh it heavier, you could say maybe they're closer to a minus two because the pump block was worth a touchdown. So minus one with an asterisk. I'll call it for a note. But overall on the year, that means they're still plus one in special teams, big plays. And for this team to be successful, I feel like you got to obviously end up in the positive. But if you could average out as like a plus one per game, you'd be sitting pretty. You were minus one that game. You were plus two in the first game. So you were there the first game. Got to get there moving forward. And you're not that far off. Special teams, even despite those couple of big issues that really stood out in the game against Coastal Carolina, overall has actually been pretty solid outside. I mean, honestly, if it was just the blo the block punt getting taken away, if the only issue to this point has been the block PAT, it'd be pretty impressive for the special teams what they've done so far, but obviously that block punt rings the most in your head of any special teams play that has occurred so far this season for KU. That is Derek's Deep Deliberations, KU Football Edition here in the fall. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017. 1320 KLWN. Let's let you hear the rest of what Lance Leipold had to say at the Big 12 Teleconference earlier today.